I think the ship functions as a little bit like a microcosm of society. Join us for another episode of 100 Years, 100 Objects, Stories from Lancaster City Museums. I'm Rachel Roberts and I'm the Collections Registrar for Lancaster City Museums. In this series, we're looking at 100 objects from Lancaster, Morecambe and the surrounding area to celebrate a century of our museums and to find out more about the past and how we relate to it now. Today, we're diving into the stories behind an unusual book. At first glance, the tables of information it contains can appear quite dry, but behind them lie an intriguing tale of an inventive man and the people he carried to a new life in a new country. Today's object is Captain Greenwood's Cludonometric Tide Table. The Tide Table is a bound book, and is a similar size to a modern paperback manual or guidebook, 17cm by 21cm. The cover is an orangey colour and features a large amount of text printed in black, surrounding an image of a ship. Above the ship is the title Greenwood's Nautical, General and Coasting Cludonometric Tide Tables, Port Directory, Harbour and Dock Guide and Advertiser. The date it was published, 1893, can be seen along the top edge. We spoke to Michaela Benson, Professor of Public Sociology at Lancaster University, about Captain Greenwood and his tide table, but also about the other work he did as a ship's captain carrying emigrants out to New Zealand. She started by telling us a little bit more about the tide table and why information like this was so important to those working on and around the sea. The tide table is a book of tables in which sailors and other people working around the coast can look up the tides. I mean, I use tide tables myself quite often because I live quite close to the coast. And sometimes if I want to know um, whether it's okay for me to go in the sea with my paddleboard, then I would consult one of these tide tables. So this is an early version of that. It's also an almanac of all the information you could need to know about ports along the coast of England including what lights and safety buoys they use, the size of ships that can enter them at high or low tide, and the charges that are levied on ships and cargoes using them. Now, I think the important thing to say is that he wasn't the first person to predict tides. This is just one example of that. Even before Captain Greenwood and other people who were writing these kind of tide tables, there was an understanding that tides were related to the movement of the moon. And that understanding had been there for thousands of years. And and we can think about some of the kind of most well-known scientists in history. So Copernicus, Galileo, Isaac Newton. They were all also working on theories of tides. But the reason that this is really important, and I think that this is the thing that can never be really determined or predicted, is thinking about how that's then also interplays with local conditions in particular areas, so the ports, And with the weather, all of this makes predicting the tide quite difficult. So these types of tide tables were an advance on that in in some respects, trying to bring those things together. So we can see that in that kind of the inclusion of the almanac with all of those information about the ports there. The origins of this word, I I don't think we, we have any idea where this word comes from. But what's significant about the book is that there's a method there for predicting the tides and all of the information brought together in one place 
allowing instructions and calculations that people could use over the course of a day or, or for a particular journey. This could be really, really important in a context where ships were a major way of travelling. They were also very, very important to trade um, in England and, and beyond that. So this was a really, really important document. The tide table is presented as Greenwood's table, and on the bottom third of the cover, it states he also prepared some of the included charts and published the book himself. So who was the man behind all of this work? William Nelson Greenwood was a ship captain and the harbour master for Lancaster. He was also a kind of, I think, an amateur inventor in, to some degree. And I think that this is really clear in the item that we're organising this discussion around. He was also a corresponding member of the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada and fellow of the Royal Geographical Society in London. And in 1868, quite early in his career at sea, he was the third officer on the relatively new iron-hulled Cunard liner, the SS Russia. And it was on a transatlantic journey to the UK from America, on that liner I assume, that Charles Dickens joined him, or at least joined the liner. Actually, what's interesting about this is that then Dickens then wrote quite in depth about the journey, which he described in Aboard Ship. And in that, William Greenwood was the inspiration for the character Mr Vigilant. And I think reading his captain's logs, you kind of get a sense of that vigilance too as well. He works his way up through the ranks to become the captain of a ship. And he worked for the Cunard Line and... On the Cunard Line, there were ships that were carrying emigrants from Britain, including a ship that he captained, which was taking immigrants to New Zealand. Now, of course, we're talking at a time where emigration was was a big part of the story of British colonisation. It happened at a massive scale, and at the time we would refer to Britain as, I was going to say an emigration nation, but it wasn't a nation at the time, it was an empire. And that's really, really important because when we think about migration today, we might think of Britain as an immigration nation. But actually, the story about migration at that point in time really was one of emigration and it was about building the empire. Eventually, he gave up being a captain and he settled in Lancaster as the harbour master. And that was a shore-based position. That was the time at which he was able to indulge in these kind of inventions and develop his tide table, looking at the effects of the sun and the moon. And that led to him writing various versions, actually, of this tide table over the course of about 20 years. As someone who has looked into emigration in history, we asked Mikola why people were going out to New Zealand to start a new life in the 1870s when Greenwood was a captain, and how many people from this area were going. I think a more pertinent question might be, why were we seeing such high levels of emigration at that point in time? And when we think about migration today, we think about it as kind of individually driven. But what was happening in the 19th and early 20th century was that the state was really encouraging emigration. It's not just they were actually doing more than encouraging. They were, by the end of the 19th century, sponsoring that. And the reason that they were doing it was because they were colonising these other parts of the world. And New Zealand is a settler colony. It was a settler colony within that. And what that meant was that they went, they put people into these boats and they sent them to New Zealand to start a new life. But along with that there was a project of making actually an English society in New Zealand. 
and colonising the local Maori population in that process. And through that project, they developed public works. So there's a whole economic development project that's going on at that point in time. In an earlier phase of emigration to New Zealand, it was supported by the New Zealand Company. And we can think about this along similar lines to the East India Company, a private enterprise going to another part of the world, developing this kind of business model that actually eventually leads to the making of this English society. But in 1855, it becomes more centralised and organised by the state. We don't know very much about individual motivations, I would say, but there are various things that are happening. Um, they discover gold in New Zealand, so, so it's a little bit of emigration in pursuit of gold. But generally, a state-led project that's about building an empire. We think about Lancaster as a port city. That's what we think about at that point in time. What's interesting is that although Greenwood was from the northwest and eventually settled in Lancaster as the harbour master, the boat actually departed from Gravesend. Now, I don't know whether there was anyone from Lancaster or Lancashire on board that boat, but what we do know is when historians have gone and looked at early emigrations to New Zealand from England... There's actually, there's this kind of curious note that in the first part of the 19th century, there weren't really very many people from Lancashire or Yorkshire. Um, and there's, there's a kind of a curiosity about why that might have been the case. But by the time that Greenwood captains this boat to go to New Zealand, it's picked up. There are more people leaving this area to move there. And I, I think I'm, I'm speculating a little bit that this might be to do with that shift. So that shift from it being the New Zealand company to being state-sponsored and the opportunities that that might have allowed people or been presented to people in order to take that trip. But what would the journey have been like for those actually on board? Luckily, Greenwood's ship's log has survived to give us some idea. Well, I think the first thing to say is it was long. <laughs> um, we have to remember that it's 12,000 miles to New Zealand. From the captain's log, it's a fascinating, a fascinating document, this captain's log. It gives you a sense of how... I think the ship functions as a little bit like a microcosm of society... There's a school on board, there's a doctor, I mean, you would expect that, and a constable on board. So they obviously were preparing for maintaining some kind of moral order on board this boat um, and continuing to educate children. But of course, a ship is very close quarters, and so we get this sense of um, you know, some of the challenges that Greenwood faces as a captain, which include the outbreak of disease, which actually results in death. So scarlet fever breaks out on the boat um, while he's travelling. They've also picked up some, some people who've been shipwrecked through a collision. So managing those kinds of issues becomes part of his daily life, I think. Um, the challenges of feeding all of the people who are on board. I, I pick up from this slightly fractious tempers and I'm kind of thinking about when I was reading this I was thinking about what it, what it might be like 
to be in charge of a group of people, even within a university, for example. Like if you have to manage this group of people and you have to maintain order, social order in some way. I get that strong sense from reading his logs there. There's some really interesting things in there too, which give you a sense of how they were trying to maintain moral order through the control of young women. And for me, that really stood out. They're trying to keep these young women below decks at inappropriate times of day, so they can't mix with the young men who are on board. And there's even a report of a young woman finding herself in a family way while she's on board. So it's really interesting to see how those issues were being managed in this small space of a ship. There's, of course, also bad weather. Uh, it becomes incredibly turbulent at times, and that stops them from doing their normal functioning of having religious services as they would do on board the boat every day. And sadly, for some people, they never get to the other side. They never make it to the destination. There are deaths at sea. There are people who are off-boarded because they're too unwell. There's all of these kinds of things going on. So this is a really stark contrast to today, where you could be in New Zealand in, OK, 24 hours, to bring this story up to the modern day, we asked Mikola why people emigrate to New Zealand today and how the history of people like Greenwood's passengers going out to start new lives has affected how we travel. When we think about the contrast between people emigrating, leaving Britain now, and there are a large number of people who leave Britain. Britain has a very, very sustained record of people leaving, its own citizens leaving. The main difference is that those structural conditions, like that state sponsorship, is not there anymore. So people really are going under their own individual volition and they're finding their ways of doing that. And that's probably also the reason that we don't hear so much about it. It's, it's one of the great untold stories of contemporary British migration is, is the fact that we have this very, very large number of people who leave in proportion to the people who stay. So it's individual, it's not state-sponsored. To a large degree, what happens now is that it's what the opportunities are in the place that you're going to, whether that's the kinds of visas that you have access to, that really shape that. A lot of British people do go to New Zealand. They move to and settle in New Zealand. And that means that they have to navigate the visa regime. So a lot of them go for specific work purposes. At various points in New Zealand's recent history, there have been calls, for example, for farmers to go and settle there. Um, and, and I know that, that, that some British farmers, in a context where there were challenges with farming in Britain, may have taken that opportunity to go and settle. So largely, the individual reasoning here would be around work or family. You might have met someone from New Zealand, you want to go and settle down with them over there. So the conditions are quite different now, in terms of what frames people's ability to move or why they might be moving, it seems. But it's really important that we remember that history because that history, the history of how New Zealand was settled as a set settler colony and, and indeed other parts of the world were settled by the British, also sets the stage for the ease with which British citizens can move and cross borders. So in many ways, that colonisation is a precursor to what we see now and actually the value of our passports. And that's really, I think, the way of connecting those things together is to think through, OK, so it, so it looks different, it's still happening. And why is it that, you know, if you're British, a British citizen, you still have to apply for a visa, obviously, 
but you're more likely to find yourself being given that visa, granted that visa and being allowed to go and settle. Thank you so much for braving the tides of history with us today. Why not embark on another journey with us in one of our other episodes, where we discuss objects ranging from newspapers to Neolithic axes? <laughs>